Well, now I turn to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning as we continue our examination of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, at least the first one that we have in scripture as we noted before. There's at least one letter before this, but God has preserved for us this infallibly inspired, this inerrant word of God for us that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and we're turning now to chapter 8, picking up at verse 7, we'll read through verse 13, which finishes the chapter. So here again is God's holy word, as he inspired Paul to write, it's therefore without error, so 1 Corinthians 8, 7 through 13. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge... For some with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, and will will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble." Let's seek the Lord in prayer briefly. Lord, we do pray that as we meditate upon these words that you inspired, that we would be lifted up, built up after the image of Christ. We pray that as I exposit this word, that it would be faithfully done, and that each of us would attend with reverence not only to the reading of the word, but to its exposition, and we pray that we would apply these things to our lives in a way that is faithful to you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Sabbath, we learned about what it means that there is one true God and that idols are nothing. In verse 4, Paul said, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. Notice Paul's point then in that context is to deal with the question of eating meat from animals that had been sacrificed, that had been offered to idols, to false gods. And so we might conclude if an idol is nothing, if it's empty, if it's vain, if it's powerless, uh, then it should make no difference if a Christian eats such meat, right? Well, Yes and no. Not so fast there. Yes, a Christian is free to eat such meat. Paul's quite clear about that. Since the idol is vain, it represents no true God. Uh, Since it is powerless, uh, such meat can certainly have no spiritual effect. No power over the believer in Christ. And we know that Uh, in the the pagan superstition of the day that some people believed that spirits entered their body by by the eating of meat and so there were some who perhaps 
we're worried. What if, if, a, if we know that these false gods or what the pagan sacrifice, the sacrifice to demons, as we'll see in a few chapters, Paul says, uh, then could not demons enter me by the eating of meat sacrificed to an idol? There might be some who are worried about that kind of thing. And then others here say, well, the idol is nothing. And what power does that have over you? And of course, we, we know that uh, if a believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then you're not going to get possessed. Yes, yes demons can, can plague you, but they, they can't enter you. Uh, but there might have been some who were weak and not understanding that. But certainly that would be a false doctrine that would be preached against in the church. But there are more... I think, though, whose consciences were injured by eating such meat because of their prior association with paganism. Paul says our love for such brothers and sisters should trump any sense of our personal freedom. Yes, the idol is nothing. No, it's not going to hurt you to eat the meat sacrificed to the idol. But what about what it does to your brothers and sisters? He lays the groundwork for that teaching in verse 1 that we saw last week where he says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. The knowledge that an idol is nothing tells us that we are free to eat the meat from idolatrous sacrifices. But such knowledge can also make a person arrogant. You can look down your nose at other Christians who don't have that same level of knowledge that you have or think you have, or who don't apply it in the same way. And in this case, it would be brothers and sisters who continue to refrain eating, from eating meat uh, that had been sacrificed to a false god. The principle of love for our brothers and sisters should dominate how we deal with such differences, Paul says. This is a matter of what we call, in theological terms, liberty of conscience. So in today's passage, uh, we learn several things about the principle of liberty of conscience, which, as we'll see, is something different than uh, Christian liberty. We make the distinction there. Uh, Liberty of conscience, dealing with our freedom to make certain conscientious choices. We learn several things in this passage about it. Number one, the... Christian is free to do anything he knows God has not forbidden. Number two, the Christian must be aware that not all of your brothers and sisters have the same level of knowledge. Number three, the Christian is not free to violate his or her own conscience. And number four, the Christian must not then tempt a brother or sister to violate his or her own conscience. Number five, sinning against another Christian is to sin against Christ himself. And then sixth, the Christian must be willing to give up permissible things for the sake of other Christians who have weaker consciences. So let's get into it. Now, uh, before we dive in, we need to define, as I said, liberty of conscience. We'll unpack this more as we go on. But liberty of conscience is not the same thing as Christian liberty. Uh, we uh, they sound similar, and they do have connected. They have, do have connections, I should say. But Christian liberty, and when we speak of this in our confessional documents, for example, Christian liberty is the freedom Christ gives His people from the consequences of sin, from the power of sin. So, 
uh, you as a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are free from the consequences of sin. You will not be eternally punished by God. Christ took that upon himself. You're free from those consequences of sin. You're free from the power of sin. As we'll uh, get into the scripture in a few chapters, we'll find Paul actually saying that God will always give you a way out when you're tempted to sin. You're free from the power of sin. You can actually overcome sin, not in your own strength, but in the strength of Christ by the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You're free from the power of death. It will no more hold you than it held Jesus. You're free from the burdens of the old covenant ceremonial law. You don't have to go to a temple to sacrifice animals uh, to deal with your uncleanness and your sin before God. Jesus has already dealt with that. So that's what we talk about when we talk about Christian liberty. But today we're dealing with something else known as liberty of conscience. Liberty of conscience is the freedom from being bound by anything that we find to be a violation of God's law. No officer of state or church, no human authority has the right to bind your conscience to force you to do what you believe to be wrong or to forbid you from doing what you understand to be right. There are some parameters to that, but that's the general principle. And we'll see some parameters as we go along here. Now, let's get into the the meaning of our scripture lesson, though. As we've noted before, uh, Corinth was a city that was rife with pagan idolatry. In particular, there was a, a temple to the goddess Aphrodite in Corinth, whom the Romans called Venus. And you, you've heard in this series about some of the wicked practices associated with the worship of that false goddess. And it came to be a fact that there, there was so much prostitution going on associated with that in that city that in the first century, when Paul wrote this letter, to be called a Corinthian woman was a euphemism for, what, for being a prostitute. But as in most Gentile cities, there were numerous other gods and goddesses that were worshipped as well. Indeed, much of the meat that you could buy if you went to the marketplace to buy meat to take home and cook, most of the meat in any major city came from animals that had been sacrificed on the altar of some heathen idol or another. What is the Christian to do in such an environment. That's a serious question that the earliest Christians had to wrestle with. And seems like we might be seeing a, an increase of that kind of thing. We may, we may, Paganism seems to be on such a rise that we might find ourselves dealing with that kind of thing. Certainly, we definitely see ourselves dealing with similar questions, but who knows, we might have to deal with the question of even dealing with whether meat has been sacrificed to some idol or not in our day. Certainly our brothers and sisters in places like India have to deal with that. This question is especially pertinent in a place where most of the believers, like Corinth, were recent converts from paganism. It hadn't been that long ago since they had been offering these animals as sacrifices on the altar of Aphrodite or some other god. 
If you were a member of the church in Corinth in Paul's day, you might have been a worshiper of Zeus or Aphrodite or some other deity not long ago. And you'd be wanting to leave that idolatry behind. In fact, we already heard Paul's teaching in chapter 6 that idolaters would not inherit the kingdom of God. So you might be thinking, I don't want to have any association with that whatsoever. Is it okay for the former idolater to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Or is it wise? And these are questions that these Christians had to wrestle with. Moreover, in a place like Corinth or Athens or Rome, participation in civic life, just going to the public festival, kind of like uh, going down to, uh, to our Pietique festival here in, in town in September. When Paul's day, that would often involve some contact with false religion. A public festival might entail the city officials giving honor to false gods. Public meals might take place on the grounds of temples to idols. Is the Christian free to participate in such a civic event? Can he or she eat at the idol's temple? Well, Paul's answer is yes, but with some serious qualifications. As we saw last Lord's Day, idols are in one sense nothing. So what difference does it make, right? The Christian who knows this knows he's not worshiping another god if he attends the public feast or eats meat that had come from an idol's temple. Now I should make the clarifying statement that no one, though, is free to violate God's commandments. If the activity in question actually would involve the active worship of another so-called god or bowing down to the idol, that certainly must not be done. Those would be clear transgressions of the first and second commandment. But what about just attending a public meal that happens to be on the grounds of what could be considered a pagan temple? The public squares of most Gentile cities were considered sacred spaces. In fact, they were usually a place that... that, uh, were in the forecourts of several temples. So where the forecourts of several temples met was often the public square of a pagan town. Look at a map sometime of the Forum of ancient Rome, and you'll see that it was surrounded by pagan temples. Paul suggests, well, in those cases it may be permissible if you're clearly not worshiping the false god. But in chapter 10, in verse 20 and 21, he clearly teaches the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. So there has to be some kind of line of demarcation drawn here. And it has to be clear. You cannot in any way be participating in or give assent to the worship of these false gods. Certainly eating meat from the marketplace would be acceptable. In fact, in chapter 10, verse 25, Paul says, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. So, just don't ask where it came from. Because if you know where it came from, now you've got this conscientious dilemma. It came from an idol's temple and... Maybe I shouldn't have anything to do with that. That last part will have a bearing on a 
later point in this sermon, but clearly eating meat that might have been offered to idols is permissible. So that brings us to our first point about liberty of conscience. Number one, the Christian is free to do anything he or she knows God has not forbidden. You'll notice that I emphasized the word there, knows. If you have a doubt about something and you think it might be forbidden by God, it's just best not to do it until you know better. Study the matter in Scripture. Come to a conclusion one way or the other with the help of your brothers, with the help of the historic creeds of the church, things like that that have helped us understand what the Scriptures are teaching. But it's wise to refrain until you're sure. If you were to act against conscience, as we'll see soon, you would be sinning. So just be sure. But if you're confident from your knowledge of God's word that something is permissible, you're absolutely free to do it. In regard to this question of eating meat sacrificed to idols, Paul says in verse 8, but food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. We see there a couple of things. One, there's, there's no condemnation before God if we eat meat or not. But he also knows he's emphasizing the issue of love here for the others. We'll get to later. He, he says that eating the meat doesn't commend you, nor not eating the meat makes you worse, right? So you're not better for eating it or worse for not eating it. So he's really targeting the people who are looking down their noses at other Christians and saying, well, why aren't you eating this meat? Aren't you silly? And they're saying, well, what difference does that make? How does eating that meat commend you before God? But if you know you are not sinning, you're free to do what you want. But there are some serious qualifications there. Even if the act itself is not sinful, you can cross the line into sin associated with it quite easily. Particularly if your exercise of your freedom shows a disregard for the conscience or the well-being of your Christian sister or brother. And so that brings us to our next point. Number two, the Christian must be aware that not all of your brothers and sisters have the same level of knowledge. Verse 7, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Many believers living at Corinth at the time, especially those who so recently had been idol worshippers themselves, had serious pangs of conscience if they ate meat that they knew came from an animal that had been sacrificed to a false god. Or if they feared that they had eaten such meat. They may have feared that, that to eat such meat nor attend or, or to attend the, the public feast was to be associated again with that idolatry that they had so recently left behind. And they didn't want to fall back into those old pagan ways. The Christian with a greater knowledge and confidence that the idol is nothing needs to be sensitive to the conscience of his brother who's wrestling with these things. He should be motivated more by love for that brother or sister in Christ that's struggling than by his sense of his own liberty. And say, well, I'm not going to let your weakness bind my freedom. Well, can't I give up some things 
for the well-being of my brothers and sisters? Remember again, verse 1 from the last time, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. In other words, Paul is saying, don't be arrogant because of your knowledge. Instead, be loving. Be loving toward your fellow Christian. That will be important to our application of points 4, 5, and 6. But before we get there, we need to handle our third point, number 3, that Christian is not free to violate his or her own conscience. So that's going to affect then how we deal with our other brothers and their conscience, with our brothers and sisters and their consciences. Again, verse 7, there is not in everyone that knowledge for some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Their conscience being weak is defiled. In other words, if I believe that to eat meat sacrificed to an idol is sin, and I go ahead and eat it anyway, I'm doing what I believe God has forbidden. Now, even if God has not actually forbidden that thing, if I think he has forbidden it, and I choose to do it anyway, I am consciously choosing my own desire over God. And that is sin. So putting our first three points together then, when we put these things together, we get our point four, which is the Christian must not tempt a brother or sister in Christ to violate his or her own conscience, because that is a temptation to sin. If it's sin to go against conscience, then to tempt someone to go against their own conscience is to tempt that person to sin. As Paul says in, in verses 9 through 11, but... Beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? You might be perfectly aware that the idol is nothing. And so long as you're not actively participating in its worship, you feel free to eat the meat that was sacrificed on its altar, and maybe you even go to the grounds of that temple and get that meat, and you're eating it there. You're eating the meat from the idolatrous sacrifices. And then your brother sees you. Your conscience isn't wounded. Then your brother observes this, and he believes this is a violation of God's law. But seeing you participate, he's emboldened, he's encouraged to participate too. Now he's guilty of sinning against his own conscience. Or maybe you even actively try to persuade him. Say, come on, if you had the confidence I have, and shouldn't all Christians have this confidence, you'd know it's not sin. So go ahead and show that confidence and eat the meat. And now he's sinning against his conscience because he goes ahead. And he hasn't been convinced in conscience that this is not a problem. You've tempted him to do that. Now, we need to note a couple of caveats here, though. Conscience is not king. We could get ourselves painted into a corner in which all of us are just saying, well, this is where I'm, where I, I'm encouraged or uh, convicted by conscience. And somebody has a contradictory view. They say they're convicted by their conscience. Well, that, well what do we do then? Do we just bow to each other's conscience or do we pick one guy in the church and say well his conscience gets to rule all of us no 
We can't just all do as we please and claim our consciences are clear or uh, bind other people by our own consciences. I don't have the right to bind you by my conscience. God, through Scripture, is the determiner of right and wrong. So we look to the Bible to find what is right and wrong. Your conscience may be informed by Scripture, or it must be, in fact, informed by Scripture. As the Westminster Confession says, God alone is Lord of the conscience, and hath left it free from doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word. So they're, they're thinking of you know, the ideas of man that are added to God's word, and that contradict it, and you are by no means... Uh, uh, bound by that. Your conscience is free. So that in matters of faith or worship, uh, we are not bound by the commandments of men. It goes on and says, so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith. What they're getting at there is the, the Roman Catholic Church saying the Pope says do this, even if it's contrary to Scripture, and uh, people saying, well, the Pope says so, so it must be true. Right, so what they're saying is, no, you obey Scripture and not the Pope or a king. Right. Says, that's, a, that's a requiring of in, implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. They who, upon pretense of Christian liberty, do practice any sin or cherish any lust, do thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of our enemy we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. So we can't claim that our liberty of conscience or our Christian liberty frees us up to sin, to do things that God's word has said is wrong. Scripture alone binds the conscience, though. And the Christian's conscience must be bound by Scripture. As the RP testimony explains, conscience is a sense of right and wrong, by which one evaluates his own thoughts and behavior. When one follows his conscience, he feels a measure of contentment. When he violates his conscience, he feels distress. Conscience is natural to man and implies his accountability to God, but it is not the rule of faith and practice. Conscience shows the work of the law written on the heart, but is distorted by the work of Satan, by man's sinful nature, and by the ungodly standards of the world. So, uh, just because I'm convicted in conscience that something is right or wrong doesn't mean that that's true. I can be wrong. My conscience is flawed because I am flawed, because I am broken by sin, because I'm tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. The testimony goes on and says, The Christian's conscience is to be directed by God's revealed law under the illumination of the Holy Spirit with due attention to the teaching and admonition of the brethren. Although conscience is not infallible, a person should not do what he believes to be wrong. So there we recognize our consciences can be flawed. We're always, that we should always be striving to bring it into subjection to Scripture and do that with the help of our brothers and sisters in Christ, but never doing anything that we truly believe to be wrong. So, if, for example, you tell me your conscience convicts you to pray to Mary. Well, I have the responsibility to show you from Scripture that that is idolatry, and you should not be praying to anyone but the true and living God. Your conscience is corrupted on that point, and it needs to be corrected. But if you're convinced that it's sin, even to tour a place, like the Vatican, for example, go and see the Sistine Chapel, right, where Mary might be worshipped, 
in a place like that? Well, I might think that that's not really true, that it's a sin to go and see that place. But I ought not to tempt you to go against your conscience. Maybe you're a former Roman Catholic and your conscience would be wounded by any association with that former idolatry you had something to do with. It would be supremely unloving of me to not be sensitive to that and try to drag you along and get you associated again with something that you want nothing to do with. Paul says, if you place such temptation before the one with the weaker conscience, and then he then violates it, he violates his conscience, you've helped him to perish, he uses the word. Now, literally the word is a word for destroyed, not perishing in the sense of eternally perishing, uh, losing salvation, but destroyed in the sense here of being crushed by guilt. So in chapter 10, Paul will counsel that for conscience sake, you buy meat from the market and don't ask even where it came from. So that nobody is worried about such things. A Christian must not tempt another Christian to violate conscience. Number five, sinning against another Christian is not just a sin against that person, but it's a sin against Christ himself. Remember, when Paul was persecuting the church and Jesus appeared to him, did he say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting those people I like? And he said, why are you persecuting me? Christ identifies with his people. In verse 11, Paul asks, And because of your knowledge shall the weaker brother perish for whom Christ died? Christ died for your brothers and sisters. And so Paul says in verse 12, But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So when we sin against brother by by tempting him or a sister by tempting her to go against their own conscience... We're sinning against Christ. So Paul says, just avoid doing that. And finally, number six, the Christian must therefore be willing to give up permissible things for the sake of other Christians who have weaker consciences. Verse 13, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Romans 14.3, let him not, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats for God has received him so on these matters of conscience we need to just leave each other alone and not tempt each other to go against conscience if it's not something that's clearly taught in God's word this is what these are matters of what are often called in the theological circles adiaphora which is is a greek word that means matters of indifference <clears throat> i may not find that scripture forbids the drinking of alcohol, but you might. And for you, your sake, I should be able to refrain, which is pretty easy for me, I don't drink much. Uh, <clears throat> and, but I should be able to refrain from it in your presence at the very least. I have a daughter with a peanut allergy. I love peanuts. I haven't eaten peanuts in a couple of years now. I love my daughter more. For her sake, I don't eat peanuts. The first reaction she ever had was when I was eating a peanut product and I took her in to put her on in her high chair 
to feed her a meal. I kissed her on the cheek. She got a hive on that cheek. <clears throat> and it broke out all over her body a little later. So I just don't eat peanut products. Lest I bring that contamination into her presence and give her a dangerous reaction. I should care at least as much about your spiritual reaction of conscience as I do about my little girl's physical reaction to peanuts. I cannot and must not give up what God commands. But I must be willing to give up what is permitted but not commanded rather than tempt you to violate conscience. You're free to do anything you know God has not forbidden. But be aware that you have brothers and sisters whose consciences are sensitive to certain matters, to things that you might have no concern about. You're not free to violate your own conscience, nor are you free to get them to violate theirs. Be sure your conscience is held captive by Scripture, and do not tempt your fellow Christian to violate their own conscience. Because such a sin against your sister or brother is actually a sin against Christ himself. Be willing, rather, to give up such freedom. To give up things that God may allow if it offends the conscience of your sister or your brother in Christ. Let love be the reigning rule here. Let love trump your sense of liberty. Let's pray. Lord, help us to do these things. We know that you alone are the Lord of the conscience. Give us consciences that are bound by Scripture and founded on love, that we may not sin against one another nor against you. For we pray these things in the name of him who gave us the freedom we have. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.